0: Y'all turn with me to Philippians chapter four, to Philippians chapter four, verse four. There was a pastor that wrote a story about a guy in his church, and this, this man in his church um, had a family who was driving across the country to go visit some family. And the dad couldn't go. He had some obligations at work that were just keeping him back, just couldn't be helped. He told him, you know, maybe I'll work hard, maybe I'll get done a little early and I'll be able to fly out and spend a day or two with you across the country with with our extended family. But as it turns out, after the family had left, this obligation he had at work just sort of dissolved. It it took care of itself and suddenly he found himself with freedom and he had a choice. He could... He could stay at home and, and bask in his own bachelorhood like some of us would love to do, or he could fly out there and, and be waiting for them when they when they arrived. He chose a different path than I think any of us would have. He decided to play sort of a practical joke on his family. So he, he mapped out their, their route to the location they were driving to. He figured out when they would be going through a particular city. He flew to that city. He had a cabbie take him out into the country, out in the middle of nowhere, on a highway that he knew his family would pass, and he just got out and waited, waited for his family to come driving down the highway and see him like a hitchhiker. Now, all kinds of things could have gone wrong with this plan. They could have totally missed him and just drove on. They could have seen him and freaked out and driven off the road. But as it turns out, it worked perfectly. He was standing out there for an hour or two, and suddenly you can just see, I'm sure, this car screeching to a halt and people pouring out, screaming, what are you doing here? I told you that was him. You should have seen the look on her face. So he comes home after this stunt, after the trip, and he tells his pastor the story. And his pastor said, what on earth were you thinking? What, what possessed you to do something like this? And his answer was interesting. He said, well, he, f- he said, one of these days I'm going to be dead and I'm going to be lying in a casket and my kids are going to be standing around me. And one of the things that I really want them to say about me is, you know, old dad, he was a really fun guy. We had a lot of fun in our family and he was part of it. And the pastor started thinking to himself, I wonder if my kids will say that about me. Maybe they'll say, boy, dad, he sure loved work. Boy, he was at the church every time something happened. He was at the hospital all the time. He was always with other people, but never with us. Or old dad, boy, he sure cared about how the house looked. He sure kept that yard mowed nice and tight. Our old dad, boy, he ran a tight ship. Do you remember that time you made a D in math? Boy, he never let you live that down. But how much more he'd want them to say, Dad sure was fun. Boy, we sure enjoyed growing up in that home. And I know, I know when you hear that, many of you are thinking to yourselves what I thought when I first heard that story, which is, hey, being a fun guy is great, but it doesn't put food on the table, doesn't pay bills, doesn't keep a roof over your head, doesn't teach kids what's right, doesn't teach them dis- discipline and respect and hard work. And all those things are true. And all those things are necessary. And all those things are exalted in the Bible as virtues. But guess what? So is joy. And in fact, there's far more about joy than all those other good red-blooded American virtues put together. And when we read the list like we did last week in Galatians chapter 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, the qualities that should be evident in every believer, love is on the list and joy is on the list. Those other things I mentioned aren't. Not that they're not important, but they don't rise to the level of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying to you is this, If you are a child of God, if you call yourself a Christian, then you should be a joyful person. In fact, you should be so joyful, you should be a source of joy to everyone around you. You should make their lives brighter and lighter and happier just by your presence. I'm talking about your family. I'm talking about your spouse if you're married. I'm talking about your neighbors, your co-workers, your casual acquaintances. They should all look forward to being around you because of the joy you bring to their lives. Now, where do I get that from? Let's start with Philippians 4, verse 4. This is just a starting point for us. This is our text for today, but we're going to look at a lot of other Scriptures. This is written by the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about Paul's life, you know he had plenty of reason to be down. And yet he writes in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Did God just really say that no matter what's going on in your life, you should have joy? Did God just say have joy as a commandment? You know, the same way He said, thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And Yeah, He kind of did. So does that mean, logically speaking, that if you break those commandments, it's called a sin and you need to repent. Does that mean that if you don't have joy, if you're not rejoicing, that it's a sin? Yeah, it kind of does. And that kind of seems wrong when you first hear it. It's like the parent who says to his whiny kid, hey, you better get happy or I'll give you something to whine about, right? And we've all done that as parents. It's not our best moment as a mom or a dad. It doesn't really work. And it sounds like that's what God is saying, kind of like the boss who says, firings will continue until morale improves, right? But that's not actually what he's talking about. See, there's a difference between what we call happiness and what the Bible calls joy, what we call happiness, when we use that term happy, we're talking about an emotion we feel. And there's nothing wrong with that emotion, but it's, it's an emotion. It's not something you can conjure up. It's a, it's a response to your environment. If things are going well for you, if life is turning out the way you want it to turn out, if you get something you wanted, if there's more good circumstances in your life than bad, you feel happy. And if the opposite is true, you don't feel happy. That's not what God's talking about. He's not saying, you better put a smile on your face, mister. Joy is something different. I've got two definitions of joy I want to share with you, both by Christian authors. One is by Kay Warren. It's a little longer. It goes like this, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Do you hear that? The determined choice. It is a choice you make that even when my circumstances are bad, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to find the good in what God has given me. I'm going to focus on the, the many things I have to be joyful about instead of the few things I have that could weigh me down if I focused on them. Here's another one by John Piper. Joy is the good feeling created by the Holy Spirit of seeing the beauty of Christ in everything and everyone. So again, joy is not dependent on our circumstances. It's something different. Here's here's something that may help you. Joy is not the opposite of sorrow. A lot of people think, okay, there's sadness and then there's joy and they are opposite sides of the same coin, but that's not the case. Sorrow, there's nothing wrong with being sad. Sadness is appropriate at certain times, and all of us are going to be there from time to time. Sorrow can be a godly thing. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is self-pity. The opposite of joy is griping, whining, complaining, dragging others down. You see? So the opposite of that, which we've all done, and some of us are very good at it, is to be joyful. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, wait a minute, sounds all good and everything, but this joy stuff... It just doesn't sound very spiritual. It just doesn't sound like a proper topic for a sermon. I mean, that's not spiritual. Joy? Are you kidding me? And I know why you think that. And, and I'm going to say something offensive to some of you. It's because you grew up in church. Can we be honest? I mean, I love church. Church pays my checks. I, I'm, I'm thankful for church. But somehow organized religion gives us the idea That in order to be truly spiritual, truly righteous, truly godly, you have to be kind of sour, kind of angry, kind of hateful. Jesus dealt with that in His own ministry. Jesus, I want you to know, was a man of joy. Jesus was a joyful human being. We get that from several places. In fact, one of them is an accusation that was thrown at Jesus in his ministry. He was called by his enemies a lot of bad names. One of, them, one of the things his enemies called him, they called him a drunkard and a glutton. And I want you to know something. I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in my study in Revelation, but it doesn't mean that Jesus drank too much and got drunk. It doesn't mean that Jesus ate too much and got overweight. No, because those are both sins. Those are both things that we're not supposed to do, and Jesus was without sin. The Bible is quite clear about that. So why did they call him a drunkard and a glutton? I think it's because they saw someone who gave all the signs of being close to God, but they couldn't reconcile the fact that he was a holy man, but he was happy. He was a holy man, but he had joy. He was a spiritual person and a leader, and yet he had joy in his life. I remember a few years ago, actually, more than a decade ago, there was a, a network TV miniseries about the life of Jesus. And I was pastoring a church out in the country at the time, and I, I challenged our church members. I said, let's all watch this, and then when it's over, we'll talk about what we think about it, how, they, how we think they did. And so after it was over, we had some good discussions, and the truth is it, it wasn't very well done. You know, There was some good parts, but it was pretty hokey. But there was one woman in my church who the part that offended her the most was they showed a scene in which Jesus performs the miracle, the very first miracle mentioned in Scripture, uh, the, the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. Remember, that takes place at a wedding feast. And in the scene in the miniseries, they show Jesus before the miracle. I mean, his mother has to go to him and interrupt him and say, it's, you know, they've run out of wine, can you help? Well, what she interrupts him doing is dancing. They're playing a song. Everyone's dancing out in the, in the middle of the courtyard, and Jesus is out there dancing with them. And this woman in my church was deeply offended by that. She said, Jesus would not have danced. Yes, she was Baptist. And, and I, I, she was old enough to be my grandmother, and I didn't really feel like I could contradict her, but I'm thinking, no, you wouldn't have danced, but Jesus would have. Jesus was a first century Jewish person. That's how you celebrate. I mean, they they came together for a wedding feast, they played music, and they danced. And it didn't mean in that culture what it often means in ours. He was a man of joy. She had the same problem that those religious leaders in his day did. No, you've, you've got to be sedate, and you've got to be grim, and you've got to be kind of boring or angry, one or the other, if you're going to be righteous. But we're talking about a man who gave Teasing nicknames to his disciples, like the Sons of Thunder for James and John who had bad tempers. We're talking about a man who liked to skewer religious authorities with these put-downs that were really very clever and witty. Like saying, you people strain at a gnat but swallow a camel. And calling them whitewashed tombs. This is a man whose personality was so magnetic, whose presence was so captivating, people would walk out into remote places and stand in the sun all day to listen to Him speak. I'm doing the best I can. I've got padded pews and air conditioning. I can barely hold on to y'all for 30 minutes. He's got them in the sun all day standing. This was a person who was not boring. He was not grumpy. He was joyful. Number two, God the Father is a God of joy. Not only is Jesus joyful, God His Father is too. Genesis 1.31, he sa- it says that when God had finished creating everything, He looked around at it and said, it is very good. And Psalm 104 verse 31 goes even further and says, the Lord is glad in all of His works. Can you imagine God looking at what He has made and it just brings Him joy? Sort of like a carpenter finds joy in the table He just built, or a, or a chef finds joy in the cake She just baked. It even says in Isaiah 65, 18, that God rejoices in his people. Can you imagine? God looks down on you, watches you in your day-to-day life, and it brings him joy, just like it brings a parent joy to watch his kids. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. You know the story: the, the boy goes off, makes a fool of himself, wastes all his money, embarrasses the family finally comes home with his tail tucked between his legs, and the dad who represents God runs to meet him and doesn't list off all his offenses and doesn't say, hey, here's the way you can make it up to me, but instead just embraces him and throws a party for him, the party of the decade. And then Jesus follows it up by saying, in the same way there is rejoicing in heaven, Every time a sinner repents. Can you imagine? Can you believe that the God we serve, who everybody thinks is so angry and remote, is a God who is constantly throwing parties in heaven? Doesn't that make you glad? Isn't that good news to find out? Acts, the book of Acts tells us that whenever people got saved in the early church, and they got saved all the time, there was always joy mentioned. They rejoiced. They went on their way rejoicing. They rejoiced with all their house. So that means that whenever the Holy Spirit arrives in your life, He brings joy with Him. And then finally, Scripture commands us over and over again to rejoice. And even I'm, I'm going to quote some that Nathan didn't even quote during the offertory. We're commanded in 1 Timothy 4, 4-5. Y'all are going to love me for this. We're commanded to enjoy the food we eat. Can I get an amen? Anybody? I mean, that is the most Baptist command I've ever seen in my life. We're commanded in Philippians 4.1 to enjoy friendships with other believers. I like this one, Proverbs 5.18-19. We're commanded to enjoy physical affection with our spouse. We're even commanded in James 1.2 to rejoice in times of trial. And again, that's not God being cruel and saying, "Get that, wipe that tear off your face. It's Him saying, trust me enough to say that even when you're down, even when life seems to be against you, you can say, I know that God's going to turn this to good somehow and I'm rejoicing ahead of time. We can find joy in all circumstances. In fact, let let me say this as an encouragement. God created everything. And that means He created fun. And that means he created pleasure. That means God created laughter. You know how feel, how good it feels to laugh. How good it feels to just be in on a joke, especially when it's not at the expense of someone who's who's you know having a hard time because of your laughter. But it's good laughter. It feels good to laugh. I, I'm sorry, I, my wife won't agree with me at this, but there's something holy about the Three Stooges. Okay, there's something. <laughs> holy about watching a movie that is just stupid funny and and or hearing a joke that's just dumb but it cracks you up do you know there's something holy about food that tastes good god did not have to make watermelon taste sweet you know how good a piece of cold watermelon tastes on a hot day and if you don't like watermelon that's okay god loves communists too okay (sighs) okay You know how when you're in love with somebody and they kiss you on the lips, it just, you can feel it from your head to your toes and it's just fantastic and you sort of melt into your shoes? God made that. God made that. And all the things I just mentioned, laughter, watermelon, kissing, none of that is essential for life. None of that is, if, if it was if it didn't exist, we'd still continue to live. Those things are gratuitous. They're gifts from God. They exist for the same reason that when a dad's on his way home from a business trip, he stops at a little store and buys presents for his kids. Same reason why mom sometimes decides to bake some chocolate chip cookies for her kids to have when they come home. It's just it's just because we enjoy seeing them happy. And so if you want to do something holy today, something righteous, laugh at yourself. Laugh. Eat some good food and enjoy it. And be thankful for it. Go out with your friends and enjoy one another's company. Enjoy a trip somewhere. Enjoy a new restaurant. Enjoy some good jokes. Enjoy some good stories. A joyful Christian is more evangelistic than a thousand gospel sermons. Especially today when most people who don't know Christ won't have anything to do with church. I can preach till my head falls off. And I don't care how good I try to be, it won't be as effective as you going out into the world and radiating joy. Because what you do when you do that, especially when you identify yourself as a child of God, is you leave them with the impression, I want what she has. And I'm not getting it through anything else. So, does that mean, therefore, that... People on beer commercials are the most spiritual people of all because they sure do look like they're having fun. That's the next logical leap, right? No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. Because there is a difference between the joy of the Lord and the pleasures of the flesh. By the way, you know beer commercials are fiction, right? You know, well, never mind, I won't go into that. But it is fiction. There's a distinction between the joy of the Lord and the pleasures of the flesh. See, when you enjoy God's blessings while keeping your eyes fixed on Him, that's joy and that's glorious to Him. But when you make your physical pleasure satiating your own physical appetites, when you make that an end in itself, when you think, I can't be happy if I don't have this experience, if I don't possess this thing, if I don't don't have this emotion, then those things become idols in our lives and they destroy us. Not only do they lead us away from God, ultimately, they're like a drug. The, the next hit has to be bigger than the last and ultimately, you end up destroying yourself. Let me give you a couple of Scriptures to back that up. Proverbs 14, 12-13. This is written by Solomon, a man who knew a little something about physical pleasure. Solomon was the richest man on earth at the time, also the wisest, and yet, he got led astray because he started chasing after physical pleasure instead of the God who had given him all these things. And he writes, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. There is a way that seems right to a man. Don't just follow your instincts. Don't just chase after your desires. That's the way to destruction. I'll give you another one. 1 Timothy 5.6 this is the Apostle Paul, the same one who said rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, but he also writes, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. That's true of a man or a woman. That when the heart, the desire of your heart is pleasure and chasing after what your body wants, it's like a living death. You're constantly using the people around you to give you what you want and you're never getting quite enough. So let me, let me just remind you that there is an individual, there is a being known as Satan. He's not a creative being at all. He's never made anything in his life, but he loves counterfeiting the things God has made. So God created joy. The devil comes back with, well, I'm going to give you a life of hedonism. That's my counterfeit version of joy. I'm going to give you a life that is devoted to chasing after the pleasures your body desires." And it doesn't work. He tries to lure us into this self-centered, pleasure-seeking as an inalienable right. And it leads us to death. So let me me address a few specific groups of people in here. If you're a teenager, you probably already know this. If you're serious about following Christ. But I need to reconfirm it for you. A lot of what your friends call fun is going to be beyond the boundaries of what God wants for you. And in fact, is going to stray into areas of, this is going to be really harmful for you if you pursue it. And you've got two choices. You can, you can go along with them and say, ah, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. And you'll end up making the same awful choices that many people in this room can look back and say, I made those same choices and I wish I could go back and be your age and tell you not to. Or you can follow God's plan for yourself, which is going to make you seem odd at times. It just is but it's also going to rescue you from a world of bad choices. And even more importantly, or at least just as importantly, it's going to show your friends a different kind of life that's going to give you the credibility so that you can lead them toward what will change their eternity forever. Single adults. Man, if you're a single adult, our world has made it, especially in America today, our world has made it so that you literally can do whatever you want and no one's ever going to condemn you for it. There will be no consequences that you can see in the short term for doing whatever your body tells you to do. And that's certainly the way the world says you should live. In fact, when you follow the dictates of your own body, the world applauds you for it. But God is there and He says, but, but I've, I've given you a path to walk. And yeah, it's a narrow path. But I promise you, I promise you, if you'll walk that narrow path with me, there will be far more joy in following the life I've carved out for you than in chasing after the things this world tells you are essential. And then for us parents, you know, that story I told at the beginning about the dad who wanted to be fun, that's a great story, and I love it. But that can't be our number one goal. The worst parent in the world is the fun dad, the cool mom. Don't be that person. Sometimes if you're a good parent, your, your kids are going to be unhappy with you. Sometimes they're going to not like you. They'll get over it much more soon than they would if you didn't guide them in the way they need to go. Our kids need to have joy. They need to have gifts. They need to have fun. But they also need to be taught reverence. And they also need to ta- be taught seriousness about the things that matter. So do the hard thing. Stand up for what is right in the life of your kids. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to laugh, but there's also a time to weep. There's a time to dance, but there's also a time to mourn. So let me ask you two questions. Number one, are you a joyful follower of Christ? Are you a joyful person? Are you a source of joy to everyone around you? I want you to seriously grapple with that question. Is this an area where you've pretty much got it? Or is this an area where you still have work to do? Because honestly, you know, odds are, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. If my eye contact rests on you right now, don't take it personally. It's just totally random. But in a room this size, I guarantee you, there are some people who suck the joy out of a room. There are some people who are a drain on the joy of the people they know. And you need to confess that if that's you. You need to confess it to God. You need to confess it to the people around you. You need to say, just like you would say if you had a terrible temper and you'd hurt their feelings, I'm really sorry, I need to change. You need to say to them, I'm sorry for taking all the joy out of your life. I'm sorry for being such a drain. Be honest with yourself. How often do you find yourself, just do a self-evaluation over the next week, how often do you find yourself really enjoying life and enjoying God and enjoying the things He's given? Versus how often do you find yourself complaining, griping, feeling sorry for yourself? Second question, So how do I I become a joyful person? How do I get there if I'm not? I've already said you can't make yourself happy. The good news is you don't have to do anything to be a joyful person. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Just like an apple tree doesn't have to do anything to bear apples and a tomato plant doesn't do anything to bear tomatoes. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to have joy. It should be flowing through you right now. And that also means... That if you're a Christian and you know you are, but you're not producing joy, then there's something wrong. Just like there'd be something wrong with your tomato plant. If it wasn't producing tomatoes, you'd say, it's not getting enough sun or I'm not giving it enough water or we need to put it in better soil. So what are some of the things that could be blocking you from the joy you're meant to have? I want to talk about those. And then I'll be done. Five things I know, and there may be more than these five, but five things that could be blocking your joy. All right? You ready for this? Number 1. Number 1, it could be that you're going through grief right now. We all go through times of grief at times. Even Jesus, Jesus in Isaiah 53, he is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In his beatitudes in Matthew 5, he said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." See, the Bible's very clear. It's not unholy or ungodly to cry. It's not wrong to mourn. If a loved one passes away, it's okay to be sad. If, if your health takes a downturn or your finances take a hit or you yourself um, are, suffer some struggle in a relationship, it's going to hurt. And it's okay to acknowledge that. In fact, one thing I want to tell this church and, and, and all Christians, one of the reasons there is a church is so there's a place full of people who can help you bear those burdens. If you think you have to come here on Sunday mornings and paint on a smile so everybody thinks everything's okay, you're missing the point. Come in here and share your tears with us so we can bear your burdens alongside you. If you're not part of a life group, become part of one so there will be someone who knows what's going on in your life and can help you bear those burdens. So again, grief is not a sin. But God doesn't want you to live in grief. He wants you to move beyond it eventually and move back into joy. There's a second second possibility. Maybe you're not experiencing joy because there's an area of rebellion in your life against God. The unhappiest people I know are not non-Christians. They're Christians who are living in active rebellion against God in some area of their life. They're just refusing to surrender some area of their life to God's will. For instance, there are Christians who have just refused to forgive someone. And yeah, they've been deeply hurt. And I don't want to minimize that, but they're refusing to move beyond it. They're refusing to forgive. And it's almost like they think, well, if I let myself be joyful, it's like I'm letting that person off the hook. I've got to be miserable so they know how bad they've hurt me. Meanwhile, the assailant over here, the person who hurt you, they're just merrily going on about their way. You're not affecting them in the slightest. You're punishing yourself. Forgive them and experience joy. Other Christians, it's It's fear that they're refusing to surrender to God. It's fear. It's this paranoia that says, I can't be happy unless I get healed of this illness. I can't be happy unless my kids are in good shape. I can't be happy unless I have this job that I love. And that fear stops us from enjoying the things we already have. By the way, let me speak another word to parents right here Just that's sort of related to what I just said. There's this saying that I've heard a lot over the last few years that says... As a parent, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Anybody ever hear that one? Is it just me? Sometimes it seems that way. I understand why people say that. Sometimes it can feel true. But I want you to know that's not in the Bible. And that's actually a very unbiblical statement. Because I think there are parents, especially moms, if I can generalize, especially moms, but maybe some dads too, who feel like if they have a child who's gone off the rails, young child, teenage child, adult child, it doesn't matter. If they have a child who's headed down the wrong path and is making their life miserable, that parent feels like, well, I can't be happy. That would be wrong. I have to, I have to be miserable. I, I'm not a good parent if I'm not just as miserable as my, as my unhappy child. And that's so wrong. Yes, love your child. Yes, pray for them. And God will reach out to them and and He'll send others to reach out to them too. But God still wants you to have joy. Not only are you missing out what God wants you to have, you're losing the opportunity to radiate joy to the rest of your family who needs you. So don't fall for the lie that says you can only be as as happy as your unhappiest child. You can be as joyful as anybody on earth no matter what happens. Number three, maybe you're not joyful because you're spending too much time around people who bring you down. Did you know that it's possible to have too many friends? That's what it says in Proverbs. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How can many companions lead to ruin? Well, if your many companions... Criticize you and complain constantly and constantly telling you how awful life is. Believe it or not, you probably have friends who don't want you to have joy because misery loves company. And so they bring you down intentionally. Here's something you probably ought to do ask someone who loves you and will tell you the truth Do you think my friends are good for me? Do you think my friends make me better or make me worse? And I know I know, some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, but I need to be a source of joy to my miserable friends. I need to be a witness to them. And yes, you do. But you also need to realize when you've stopped being an influence on them and instead they're an influence on you. Maybe it's time to spend a little less time with that person who just drains the joy out of your life. And a little bit more with someone who is a source of light. And hope. Fourth possibility. Maybe you're not experiencing joy because you're suffering from a mental illness. And that's not a joke. I read recently that 25% of Americans at some point in their lives will struggle with some form of mental illness. This is something, you think about that statistically. That's one in four. That means probably every American family has at least one family member that struggles with some form of mental illness. So if you thought you were the only one Your family was the only one that that struggles with this. You're far from right. Do you know that in, in the Scriptures, one of the boldest people that ever served God was named Elijah? I love the stories of Elijah. He was just a man's man. And yet there came a point when Elijah walked a day's journey into the desert, laid down under a broom tree and prayed to God and said, Lord, just kill me now. I'm not worth anything. Just take my life. And I've had friends and I've had family members who were in that same spot, just like Elijah, who couldn't even get out of bed, they were so miserable, who who were just who nothing sounded fun, nothing sounded enjoyable, there was no joy in life. One of the good things I can say about today, for decades, for for years uh, into the past, we've sort of treated illnesses like that in a different way than other physical illnesses. So if our gut was hurt, we'd go to a gastroenterologist. If our bones were broken, we'd go to an orthopedist. But if our mind was messed up, we wouldn't go to someone who specialized in disorders of the mind, even though that's their job, even though God gave them to us as a gift. Thankfully, that's changing. And now there's a lot more recognition that, hey, a disease of the mind is just like a disease of the foot or the stomach or the elbow. Why not get help? Fortunately, we're, we're blessed here at First Baptist Church to have Larry Renetsky who, leads a, who has a counseling ministry right here on our campus. And I know many, many people who've called him and gotten help, and I urge you to do that. There are many people in this room, I have no doubt, who need help with emotional and mental problems. And that's what's stealing your joy. And they're sitting there thinking, yeah, but if I really had faith in God, I'd just be happy. And God's saying, I gave you this person to go to who can help you. And I urge you to do that. Fifth. Fifth possibility. Maybe you don't have joy because you don't know Christ. You see, it's possible to be happy without Jesus, but happiness is just an emotion. It'll go away as soon as your circumstances change for the worse. I don't think it's possible to have joy without Jesus. And here's why. You were created for a relationship with the God of the universe, through His Son, Jesus Christ. You really can't find joy without it. Without Jesus, you're like an, a- an eagle trapped in a tiny cage. And that eagle, you could give him all kinds of distractions and good food that could sustain his life for a while and maybe distract him from his state in life. But he's going to die, and he's going to die miserably because an eagle was created to stretch his wings and soar. In the same way you were created for a relationship with the God of the universe, And if you're trying to make it through life with these other distractions which work for a while, but without the relationship you were created for, you will die and you will die miserably. You were made for that relationship. And in just a moment, we're going to give you the opportunity to walk forward and say, I need that relationship in my life. I don't have it. And I'm tired of trying to make this work without it. I don't know if the next story I'm going to tell you is true. And I say that because I try to tell you true stories, okay? I just read this once. I liked it. I'm going to quote it as is. But apparently, according to the story I read, in the nation of Ghana and Africa, the largest Christian group is the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church arrived there centuries ago because Scottish Presbyterian missionaries went to Ghana. And when these Scottish Presbyterian missionaries would baptize a Ghanon into the faith, they would start trying to help them act like Christians, which meant act like Scottish Presbyterians, which meant being very sober and very serious and very reverent in worship. And then in the last few decades, someone came along and said, you know, this is kind of silly. Why are we making these Ghanans act like they're Scots when they're actually why not, let Why not let them worship God in their own way? And so the Ghanans changed their worship, but they really only changed one part. According to the story, they only changed one part of their worship service. For all the rest of the worship service, it looks like any other Presbyterian service, very sedate, very sober. But then after this message is over, they have the offertory. And when the music starts, they don't pass a plate. They put the plate in the front of the church, and the people come forward and give it. But they don't walk forward, and they don't jog forward. They dance. They dance down the aisle. And according to the story I read, they really get jiggy with it. Now, how's that up-to-date cultural reference from 30 years ago? Um, And the person writing the story said, it's fascinating that the most joyful part of the service is when they're giving their stuff away. Don't worry. We're not going to try this here. I've got no rhythm You people don't look like you have rhythm either, most of you. And offerings would go down. No one would benefit. So what I'm saying, though, is this. Could it be that your lack of joy is because you're holding on tight to something? Something you know, you know God wants you to give over to Him. Maybe an area of rebellion in your life. Maybe some ministry He wants you to be involved in. Somebody He wants you to help. Or maybe it's your own life, your own soul it's time to give that over to Him and see what He can do. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before Him, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. The cross was a place of agony for Jesus, but it was also a place of joy. You know why? Because He said, I'm giving up my life, but I'm getting you for eternity. That's why we can be saved, because He gave Himself away. And when we give ourselves completely to Him, we find joy inexpressible.